This one looks less problematic than that one. <laughs> we're, um, we're at the end of this month long through Psalm 119. There. Two sixteen verses is uh, something of a summary, really, of the whole psalm. The introduce the thinking about they they appear again. They they're last. And, I, and in some ways, I think actually these last 16 verses capture um, Israel's experience and really the experience of people. So let me pray for us. We'll, we'll read this and uh, take a look. Let's pray together. To, to help us so that these words are driven deep into our hearts, deep into our Grant us your spirit to that end. Psalm 119. Princes persecute me without cause. I rejoice like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandment. them exceedingly. Let my cry for you, O Lord, give me. My lips will pour forth praise to your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. I have chosen your precepts. I long. And your law is my delight. And let your rules help me like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandment. Word of the Lord. Did you say I was short? Oh, I have a short. Oh, okay. Well, here.
Yeah, that's okay. That's better, isn't it? I could hear that. It was doing strange things. Excuse me for being half-dressed up here. Thank you, Ben. As always, here to rescue. Okay. As I was saying, in the summer of 1999, um, I had a sabbatical. It was my first and my last sabbatical until last fall when Barb and I were given September and October to kind of get used to this semi-retirement thing. Well, in the summer of 1999, I thought I'm going to use this time to memorize some extended passages of Scripture. Right? I'm going to try to put this time to good use. So guess what passage I picked? You guessed it. Psalm 119. Not very smart. I made it through the first 16 verses and gave up because I couldn't keep law and testimonies and statutes and precepts and commandments and righteous rules and words and decrees. I couldn't keep them in their proper places. So with 160 verses to go, I quit. I just quit. But I did continue to read the psalm. I think I read it several times through the summer, and, and it was, you know, it was really profitable, uh, as has this, this exercise this fall been. I've really appreciated the, you know, the insights that the different pastors have brought to this. Uh, it's been really helpful, uh, and I suspect really that what tonight is going to be is a, is a bunch of reminders. These are some of the things that we've seen, some of the things that, that we've heard and that we've, we've reflected upon. So while they may be things that you've heard before, I'm kind of with Peter and Paul. I don't hesitate to remind you of things you already know. It's good for you because you forget stuff, right? So here's the first thing. Here's the first thing. Once again, you hear the psalmist crying out for deliverance. You see it in verses 169 and 170 and 173. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. And in these two stanzas, it seems that what provokes the cry of the psalmist is verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause. We don't, we don't really know who authored this psalm. He's obviously incredibly creative to create this alliterative thing, as has been pointed out. Uh, nor do we know when it was written. But we get the sense repeatedly that this psalmist feels like an alien living in a hostile world. In fact, twice he uses the language of, of sojourning or of being a sojourner. He does that in verse 19 of the psalm, and then again in verse 54. Again and again, he feels opposed. Earlier in the psalm, verse 22, he has experienced derision. Verse 39, he has experienced scorn. Verse 69, slander. Verses 23 and 85, intrigue and conspiracy. And the intensity of all of this has left him feeling small 
and despised, verse 141, dried up, verses 25 and 28 and 83, brought to tears, verse 136, and even angry and disgusted, verses 53 and 158. The very next psalm, Psalm 120, picks up on this this business of feeling like an alien living in a hostile world. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar, these these two regions that are far, far removed from, from the promised land, from home. They're They're places of exile. And the psalmist continues, Woe to me, or too long have I had my dwelling among those those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. These cries, the cries of Psalm 120 and of 119, the cries of God's people throughout the Bible, the cry for deliverance, they, they really echo that archetypal cry of Exodus chapter 3? What is it that prompted God to act back in Exodus chapter 3? What is it that prompted God to call Moses and to send him back to Egypt, clothed in God's power, equipped with God's word to bring deliverance to God's people? People living as aliens, living as strangers in a foreign and an oppositional world. What is it that prompted God to act? Well, Exodus 3, 7 tells you. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. God came to deliver them from a great prince, an oppositional prince, Pharaoh, who was persecuting them without cause. And God does come. He does hear their cries and their pleas, and he responds. And he delivers them through Passover, through the shedding of the blood of a spotless lamb. And he sends them on their way. He sends them in the direction of the promised land. But not only does he deliver them and not only does he send them on their way, but he remains with them. He leads them. He protects them. He dwells among them. And then finally, he brings them to himself and he enters into covenant relationship with them. That's what happens in Exodus 19. After God has delivered them, after God has sent them on their way, And it's striking, it's striking, isn't it, in Exodus 19, that though he covers himself on the mountain with a cloud of glory, a cloud that is filled with terrifying lightning and thunder, and God speaks warnings telling people that that no one should touch the mountain, no animals should touch the mountain, even with that, he tells them that they will be to him a kingdom of priests and a treasured possession. They will be to him a treasured possession above all the nations of the earth, and they remain that treasured possession. God, in effect, weds Israel to himself. It's a wedding, right? 
And God forsakes all others, and he gives himself wholly to Israel. And that's why it's a safe thing for the psalmist to cry out. That's why it continues to be a safe thing for you and me. Arguably, uh, an even safer thing. Because we have the better Moses. We have the better Moses who has accomplished an even greater deliverance and who has wed us to himself, who has sealed himself to us, not in tablets of stone, but in the blood of a cross. That's what we've been hearing through these weeks. There is one who hears. There is one who cares. There is one who is realer than what appears to be real. There is one who loves us, as we hear all the time, with an always and forever love who will not let us go, who has given Jesus to us to deliver us from sin, from death, the devil, the grave, and hell. He has come to deliver us from a greater prince and a greater bondage. That's why the psalmist celebrates the law, the Torah, Verse 162, I rejoice at your word. Verse 163, I love your law. 164, I rejoice seven times a day for your righteous rules. 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. This all started very early in the psalm. Verse 12, where the psalmist writes, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. And again, if you think back to the story of the Exodus, there's a pattern here that explains why the psalmist rejoices in having the word of God, the law of God, why he finds it so precious. And the pattern begins with deliverance. Deliverance that leads to covenant relationship. And then God gives them the law. God, having redeemed them and brought them to himself, gives them a law, a guide for the ordering of their lives. Remember, they've they've lived in Egypt. They've lived in a polytheistic, pluralistic world. And that polytheism, that pluralism can can sort of seep into your veins in in subtle sorts of ways. But God gives them this law in order to order their lives. Deuteronomy chapter 4, God reminds the nation that this law will be for them wisdom and understanding in the sight of the nations who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So God doesn't redeem his people, bring them to himself in covenant love, and then leave them to figure out life on their own. Right? I don't, I don't know if this was Ed's line or if he stole it from somebody, but a couple of weeks ago, Ed made this great comment, my imaginations will destroy me. Well, God doesn't do that. He gives his word to his people to be what this psalm becomes. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. Why do you need lights and lamps? 
Because without them, you walk in darkness. And God doesn't want his people to be in darkness. He wants them to be in the light. Something we've been hearing about repeatedly on Sunday mornings. Dane Ortland makes this comment on Psalm 119 in his devotional Psalter, which I just think is a, is a great devotional help. He says this, we tend to view God's law as inhibiting human flourishing. The psalm uses different words to describe the law, reflecting the richness of the Torah, and then this line, and the flourishing life into which it brings us. Ortland then goes on to quote C.S. Lewis. God not only understands, but shares, this sounds like John Piper, doesn't it, for those of you who read John Piper? God not only understands, but shares the desire which is at the root of all my evil. By the way, Piper got it from Lewis and not the other way around. You do know that, right? God not only understands, but shares the desire, which is at the root of all my evil, the desire for complete and ecstatic happiness. He made me for no other purpose than to enjoy it. But he knows, and I do not, how such happiness can be really and permanently attained. My imaginations will destroy me. God knows that. He also knows how such happiness can really and permanently be attained. So God's law doesn't rob of happiness. It charts a course, actually, that leads to the enjoyment of it. Our problem is, of course, constantly, that we are looking for love in all the wrong places. But the order is critical, folks. It's always deliverance and then law. And even when the law shows us our lawlessness, God's design is a loving and gracious design. Let the law be a schoolmaster that lead us to Christ. So the order is critical. God is redeemer of his people and then their lawgiver. Exodus 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. So now listen to the ways in which the psalmist celebrates the law. He finds it to be good. He finds the law to be good. There is goodness in it. I think that's what leads him in verse 161 to stand in awe of the law, to love it over against falsehood, which he abhors and hates, verse 163. It keeps him from stumbling and so brings him great peace, 165. So many verses in this psalm repeat this refrain, the law is good. You hear it often prayed from this pulpit. You hear verse 18 prayed, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. Verse 39, turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules good and right. There there is a rightness about God's law, a goodness about it, because God is good and God is right. 
and his law is an exhibit of his character. It manifests what he is like. Robert mentioned last week that that the creation reflects this rightness, this goodness. There is a way that life is ordered. There, There is a way that reality works. And so there is a way to live that is in concert with, that is in step with the way life is ordered. And to sin is actually to be out of step with the character of God and out of step with the way life is supposed to be. Even with God's curse imposed upon the creation, there is still woven into the creation in this God-cursed and sin-plagued world, there is still an order. It's obscured, it's fractured, but it's there. And to sin is to move against that. It's to move not in the direction of life, but in the direction of death. There is a way that life is supposed to be. A friend of mine put this question to me, this is years ago, put this question to me. And it's an interesting question. It's actually two questions. Is murder wrong because God says it's wrong? Or does God say it is wrong because it is wrong? There's a nuance there. It's a great question. And you can ask that about any other thing that God prohibits. And when God commands positively, when he commands things, is he commanding arbitrarily? Or is he commanding what is in keeping with who he is and with the way life is supposed to be? the way reality works. There is a way that things are supposed to be. And in a world that is so disfigured and so disordered, to have this word of God, to have these testimonies, to have these statutes, these rules that are there as we seek to order our lives in keeping with the way things are, that's a really, really good thing. And the psalmist knows it. He knows that the the law actually brings relief. It brings relief. This is good. This is a good way to be. But he not only sees the goodness in the law, he also values it. Verse 162. I mean, you can... You can see something sort of objectively. You can see that it makes sense, but not assign to it the value of which it's worthy. But the psalmist does that. He values it. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. This idea, I think, is actually embedded in the very first verse of the psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they, right? I mean, who doesn't want to be blessed, (laughs) right? The word that's translated blessing derives from a word that suggests kneeling. It's the picture of a lesser kneeling before the greater to receive something from the greater that only the greater can bestow. It's what it is to be blessed. It's 
It's to receive something from this one who is greater and to, and to value it, to see its value. Genesis chapter 1, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God conferring upon the man and the woman this remarkable privilege of life and this, this remarkable task of, of stewarding the creation. David sees the value of the law. Um, when James and I were meeting to decide music, we both were reminded of this song that we sang in college, right, from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. More to be desired are they than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the drippings of the honeycomb. Now that'll confront you, won't it? You know, I didn't worry about fluctuations in the market at age 42. I figured I had time. I find that I value and care more about fluctuations in the market than I do the law of God. But those things are all passing away. It's the word of our God that stands forever. It, it, it's the testimonies of God, as Robert pointed out last week, it's testimonies of God about himself and it's the testimonies of people about God and what he's done. His testimonies, his commandments, his rules, his statutes, more desirable than gold. So the psalmist sees the goodness of the law, he sees the value in the law, but even more, he is in love with it. He's in love with the law. The law embedded in this great story of deliverance and God rescuing a people. Eight times in these 16 verses, the words rejoice, love, praise, delight show up as the psalmist reflects upon the law. The law has gotten deep into his bones, which is what he wants, isn't it? Verse 105, or I'm sorry, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know what begins to happen as this word gets deep into your bones? Lots of things happen, but among them, these words become our words. These words become our words. This language becomes our language. It's prayers, it's praises, it's cries, it's hopes. They become our prayers and our praises and our cries and our hopes. And that's certainly one of the reasons the psalmist loves it. Sean pointed this out in the very first of these studies in Psalm 119. When you are out of words, when you don't have words, here are your words. Here is language, language for you. I said in that summer of 1999 that I was going to use the time to to memorize some extended passages of, of scripture. I, I still feel pretty much like a toddler when it comes to memorizing scripture. 
You know, like I'm just getting started. Um, but my morning devotional time, my, my quiet time, most mornings normally begins with a short prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. And then this, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your saving help again and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then often, what will follow that is Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Words that just across the years have worked their way into my heart and they've, they've become my words. I know you've experienced this. I'm just wanting to encourage you about it. And there are other passages for me. I'm sure there are for you. Psalm 16, Psalm 23. True, life-giving words because they are God's words. So the psalmist sees the good in the law of God. He values the law of God. And he loves these words. But here's the thing. This is the stunning thing. It's the somewhat surprising thing. And I'm sure this is true for you, as it was for the psalmist. It surely is for me. You come to the end of this psalm, and you are right where you started. Right back where you started. Crying out to God. In six of these concluding verses, there is a plea. Let my cry come before you. Let my plea come before you. Let your hand be ready to help me. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Let my soul live and praise you. And then this. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. I've been, I've been kind of stunned by this over the last two to three weeks or so. I know I've read Psalm 119 a bunch of times. How many? I don't know. But I don't know that I've ever seen this. Here is this one who is in covenant relationship with the Lord. He is a son of the covenant. His life is being ordered by the law. He says repeatedly, I keep your commandments. I keep your statutes. I'm following your statutes. 
He sees the goodness of the law. He values the law. He delights in the law. He hopes in its promises. He sings about it and so much more. And yet after 175 verses extolling the virtues of the law, he concludes this, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Are there echoes of Paul in this? Or or rather, does Paul echo the psalmist? Does the psalmist experience what the apostle was later to experience and then acknowledge Paul who wrote to the Romans in chapter 7, the law is good, it is righteous, it is holy, it is deeply spiritual. It does all kinds of things. It teaches, it guides, it instructs. But there is one thing the law cannot do. It cannot save me. It cannot seek me. It cannot find me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Save your servant. Rescue your servant. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. I was so encouraged last week. I'm I'm encouraged really every communion Sunday, but I was so encouraged last week to be reminded that this table is a table for sinners and that I need this table because I need to be reminded that Jesus saves. It's not my law-keeping. It's not my love of the law. But it's Jesus Friends, prize the law, love the law, use the law. Let it shape you. Let it have its way with you. Let it guide you. Let it teach you. Ask the law to lead you to Jesus. And ask the law to show you how to follow Jesus. But never ask the law to do something it cannot do. It cannot save you. Only God can do that. Only Jesus can do that. He's the one who came to seek and to save lost and wayward sheep. And he's the one who by his grace through his word continues to order our lives that our lives might be by his grace some small expression of his very character before the watching world. Friends, don't ever, ever ask the law to do something that it simply can't do. Only Jesus can save you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great passage, this wonderful word that you've given to us. Would you please, as we seek to know your word and take it into our hearts, take it deep into our bones, Would you, by your grace, cause it to do its work there in us and among us, that you might be praised by the watching world. We ask in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.